0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, I think it's high time we pivoted away from video.
0: (laughs) Yes. Amen. A thousand times yes. We are an audio-only format, so arguably we've already pivoted away from video, but we're going to make some room for the printed word as well with our review of an adaptation of a much-loved book. That, of course, would be Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret.
1: And then we're going to pair that with another movie about a young woman going through a pretty substantial change in her life. That would be Agnes Varda's Cleo from Five to Seven for our watch list segment.
0: We're searching for meaning in times of great change here on episode 379 of Seeing and Believing. Are you there, God? It's me. Margaret, right? I'm here to speak to you today about your changing body. Please, just do this one thing for me. Let me just be normal and regular like everybody else. Just please, 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 please. Yes, we're here on episode 379 of Seeing and Believing. We're going to Take a bit of a trip back to the bad old days of adolescence here (laughs) in this first segment. I don't know. Have you adequately prepared yourself, you think, Sarah, for for this?
1: Nobody is prepared for adolescence the first time around. I'm certainly not ready for it the second time around either. But we will do our best.
0: We we will. Um, I hope that you actually kind of... Keep that in mind. Like That sounds like a really good bit of uh, opening voiceover for your own, like, <laughs> biopic one of these days about your your own childhood. So
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll write that down, I guess.
0: I guess. <laughs> um, listeners, we are going to be talking about the adaptation of a little book you might have heard of called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, pairing that with the French New Wave film Cleo from 5 to 7 in our watch list segment. But uh, I guess we should make it clear from the outset, though, Sarah, you and I have not actually read the source material Mm -hmm. uh, for this first movie. But even though that is the case, I still think there's plenty for us to to talk about. Mm -hmm. So for anyone else who also hasn't read the novel, this is Judy Blume's well-known book about a young girl named Margaret whose life is thrown for a loop at the beginning of her sixth grade year. Her family moves from New York to New Jersey. She starts over at a new school. The looming specter of puberty has turbocharged the insecurities of her and pretty much everyone around her. And on top of everything else, her parents' mixed faith marriage has given rise to a period of spiritual uncertainty which is dramatized throughout by Margaret's running conversation with a God whom she knows nothing about but seeks out anyway. So, uh, Sarah, like I said, neither of us have actually read the source material. But that said, uh, we've both been through adolescence. Mm -hmm. As pretty much anyone uh, knows, it's a period that is pretty universal in a lot of the insecurities that come with it. Mm -hmm. So maybe to get a start... We can talk about what you think about how director Kelly Fremont Craig has done in portraying the ups and downs of that particular period of growing up.
1: Yeah, speaking as a former pre-adolescent girl, um, Kelly Fremont Craig does a really good job. I I think with the source material, it's not just a well-known book, but it's a well-beloved book. And... Although both of us have not read the book, I'm kind of familiar with it just through cultural osmosis. Like, you know, the plot beats that are coming because it is a coming of age book. And it also because it is this very specific Judy Bloom story. And there is a reverence for the source material that doesn't get too reverent, I think. It's a very light touch. And on top of that, it doesn't feel as though the movie is trying to necessarily hit any specific plot beats just because they're there. It just feels like it's chronicling a year in the life of a sixth grade girl. And I think Craig really nails it, honestly. This is a very charming movie. It's a very sweet movie. It's a gentle movie, but it doesn't really pull its punches either. And I think a lot of that comes from the strength of the direction from the strength of the performances, especially some of the um, supporting performances, which we will definitely get into. Um, And there's also just some really lovely blocking and framing work that they're doing here. Um, Whenever Margaret is praying, like whenever she is like, thinking about her circumstances and whenever she's she's reaching out and she's trying to pray and doesn't really know how the camera kind of focuses on her and gives you a really good sense of what's going on inside her head. The very first time this happened, I knew we were in good hands because Abby Ryder Fortson, who plays Margaret, um, is framed kind of in stark profile up against the camera it's a very extreme close-up I thought but it's not a, it's not severe even though the angle itself is severe she's framed so that her face is a little bit closer to the right edge of the screen rather than her, the back of her head um being like kind of dead center within the frame like she's a little bit off kilter and it looks as though she's boxed in and she's literally speaking to a wall which she might as well be doing because she just doesn't fully understand what it is that she's doing or why she's even doing it. She just knows that she feels the desire to pray at that moment. And I love that because it gets you into her head as she's trying to suss out who she is, what she wants, trying to express that she really doesn't want to move away from the big city. And it's a very, like, it's a pretty subtle touch, but I think it's extremely effective. And that touch and that sensitivity to where margaret is within her head whenever she's thinking or praying throughout the rest of her year like i never lost sight of that level of sensitivity or of that care um, it's just it's a very sweet and lov- lovely little movie and i i quite enjoyed it
0: i'm glad you brought up the the scenes where margaret actually talks to god um, because i think you're 100% right that the way that Craig directs those scenes is very savvy. Um, you you mentioned a lot of visual details. What I notice is the shallow focus. Like it's mm-hmm. mostly mm-hmm. Uh, just Margaret on screen. Kind of her surroundings. What we can see of them, even in close up, are out of focus. It's it's just it's a very intimate way of framing the conversation. Like it's just her and God and the conversation that uh, she's trying to strike up with him and um, that was honestly surprising to me because i i know you said that this is a a book that is easy to pick up through cultural osmosis mm-hmm. and of course i'd heard of it but what i knew about it was basically kind of like the puberty stuff like you know there there's this girl and she's going through all the physical changes and you know she she can't wait to experience some of them and that she's comparing herself to other girls her age, and just there's a lot of angst around that. Mm-hmm. I didn't the the spiritual elements of the story I thought were more like the the impression that I got having not read it was that they're more kind of, more kind of like window dressing or maybe a, a dramatic conceit to give us access to her inner monologue. Mm. And I was really happy that that was not actually what this is about. This is a story that is that really takes the. Protagonists spiritual seeking seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and takes the the existence of of God seriously as well. Like mm-hmm. this is this is not just sort of like a cutesy, oh, she's praying to God because she's basically talking to herself and kind of doesn't want to feel like she's talking to herself. No, it takes her spiritual um, search um at face value, very seriously and respectfully too, mm-hmm. and that was really nice to see. I really liked this movie. Uh, I, I went in not really having any expectations for it, but I, I came away from it just being really impressed with not only the the narrative, but also the way that it handles all the, these really. Larger questions with such a light touch that it feels appropriate for a story about a preteen girl, Mm -hmm. but it also feels like it's not dumbing anything down or taking certain things for granted about... Uh, what she is thinking and the big questions that she's considering, and I think that's really lovely to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's respectful without being stolid. Um, I think that that would just completely like make the movie fall or collapse underneath its own weight. There are probably a lot of expectations around this movie because the book is just so beloved, but the film feels like it's both appropriate for like grown-ups and also for the preteens that it's about. And I think that they really managed to nail kind of the balance between treating Margaret's issues as something that she would think of as being basically the end of the world. Like when, when you're 11 or 12 and you're moving, it, it does feel like the whole world is ending in a sense. And the movie treats that reaction seriously without trivializing it or without making it overwrought or overdramatic either. Like, like we've said, it's a pretty light touch without casting aside any of the emotional reality of what Margaret or what her family is going through too. I really like this movie because it understands what it's like to be inside Margaret's head and it takes that seriously. But it doesn't just focus on her as a character, there are some other really well-rounded and well-fleshed out characters around her, too. There are her friends at school, but there's especially her parents, played by Rachel McAdams and Benny Safdie. Let,
0: let us now give thanks for the wonder that is Rachel McAdams. She's wonderful. She's so great in this movie, and she's always great in everything. Mm-hmm. And I expect her to be great, but I think she's particularly excellent in this role Mm -hmm. right she's um and and i think a lot of that is the performance a lot of it is in how craig is very good at giving her just the right amount of focus where it still feels like it is margaret's story it's not her mother's story and it, it doesn't feel like craig is uh taking the source material and sort of pulling focus more onto the parents just so that the parents who are going to see this movie maybe with their young with it with their children kind of have something to relate to Mm -hmm. i feel like it it's a balancing act between both of them and mcadams does such a deft job at uh imbibing this woman who's you know kind of doesn't really know what she's doing mm-hmm. in in, the, in a very similar way to Margaret. Like Margaret's got a lot of uncertainty about what she should be doing. Like what is, what is her place in the world? What is expected of her and kind of trying to lean into those, maybe sometimes a little bit to her own detriment and Mick Adams as her mother is kind of doing the same thing except an adult version where she's trying to, you know, be the perfect wife and mother and mm-hmm. homemaker and, doing all these things with the PTA and you can tell she's not super comfortable with it but she's doing anyway because she thinks that's what you do mm-hmm. when you reach a certain age and you have a, a kid in sixth grade you do certain things and I think McAdams does a really touching job of of embodying her mother's uncertainty and uh, the difficulty she's going through without overplaying it to the point where she feels like it's uh, more of a, a onerous task than it than it is, I guess. Like she just threads that needle perfectly,
1: mm-hmm. and with a sense of humor too. Like mm-hmm. there are some really lovely touches and beats. Sometimes at the end of a scene, sometimes in the middle, where Margaret will say or do something that is completely baffling to her mother, and her mother reacts and says, "Are you sure you don't want to wear socks with your <laughs> shoes? You're going to get blisters." And just the look on Rachel McAdams' face as her daughter goes about her day doing dumb things because that is what sixth graders are want to do. um, And taking that all in stride with a sense of humor, you know, treating her daughter like she is a person in her own right, but also being a really good parent, I think. And that's something that's pretty hard to portray, I think, because, I don't know, like, it's it's difficult to I mean, one, it's difficult to be a parent. (laughs) Um, It's also difficult to portray that with that light touch. Like it could feel heavy handed, like this is a lesson in how you are going to parent versus this is a portrayal of someone who, like you said, doesn't really know what she's doing, but she's trying her best at the same time, Margaret and her mother kind of parallel each other really beautifully in some different ways. And you can tell that Margaret is very much her mother's daughter in the way that she reacts to certain situations. And a lot of that comes from the recognition that we see on Rachel McAdams's face as Margaret goes about trying and experimenting and and learning to become a person in her own right as well. We can tell that rachel mcadams's character barbara has been there before Mm -hmm. and she sees herself in her daughter and she's going to let her daughter make some of those same mistakes because ultimately those mistakes are the harmless ones and it's okay for her daughter to learn from those too
0: well and i also appreciated how uh mcadams doesn't make her the the mother character barbara she doesn't make barbara incompetent like she doesn't really know what she's doing Mm -hmm. and she's you know she's just doing her best but she's also not clueless and i think that's also really crucial, I feel the big mistake that movies about kind of coming of age stories make is that the parents aren't just sort of like, I don't know how to talk to my kid about puberty. They're like they're dopes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like this movie does a great job at showing a parent who is obviously doing this for the very first time and mm-hmm. doesn't know everything. But they're all. she also has good instincts and she is... Yeah, you know, she's like she's a person about it. She's not a caricature. Yeah, and I think that extends to pretty much all of the characters. I think, um, with maybe the exception of a couple of supporting players, I think all these characters uh, are embodied by the cast in a way where they feel convincingly like people, and they don't shade too far into into caricature. Even sort of like the. The mom who's the head of the PTA, which is sort of like that's a character type we've seen a million times before where she's super type A and she's all put together mm-hmm. and you kind of expect her to be a certain way. And she is to a certain extent, but she's also not like the the two-dimensional sort of boo-hiss kind of queen bee that I feel like other movies in this vein have portrayed that character as.
1: Yeah, this is a kind and sweet movie about people, and it's not going to treat any of its characters as one-dimensional because of that, because I think it's it's too good to simply set up several straw men or obstacles in Barbara and in Margaret's way. Like, those characters aren't there to be object lessons for either of these people. they are other people to be navigated around. And I think the movie does this probably the best in the core conflict, which isn't even really a conflict that Margaret is central to, although it does certainly play into the fact that she is actively seeking and and looking for God and constantly praying. Um, Margaret is being raised by a Christian mother and a Jewish father, and both of them have agreed that they're not going to raise their daughter in either faith. They're going to give their daughter the space to choose once she is grown up and i think that that's a well-intentioned choice and the movie certainly treats it as such but the movie also recognizes that this kind of puts margaret in a difficult spot as she's starting to get curious about religion um she seems to resent the fact that her family doesn't celebrate any religious holidays and she's actively looking like she's doing a research project on religion for school and She feels as though she's kind of caught in a tug of war, not between her parents, because her parents are very pointedly neutral in this sense, but between her parents' parents who do want to see their granddaughter raised in their own faith tradition. And I think that the movie is really good at teasing out the conflict and the confusion that Margaret herself feels versus the pressure that her parents feel to try to get like their daughter to conform. Like Her parents feel the pressure from their own collective parents. It's a tangled web of differing motivations and different wishes for this one person who is ultimately a person and has to be able to make that choice for herself. And I like that the movie doesn't seem to think that there is any one right way for Margaret to navigate this situation other than to be open and curious and to continually pray and seek. And it doesn't seem to think that she needs to make that choice at any one given time either. Like, it's it's a very gentle and deft touch, I think, for a very thorny situation that I don't think any of us would really know how to navigate if we were in that position either.
0: Yeah, I, I also liked how, uh, for for the most part, I if, if I have one quibble with this film, it does feel like the... The conflict with the different sets of grandparents mm-hmm. and their um, their uh, diametrically opposed desires for Margaret's spiritual upbringing um, that the, that conflict feels like it's maybe wrapped up too quickly. It's not. It doesn't feel like it's done too tidily because I think the movie does is, is savvy enough about it to do justice to the fact that this is really difficult Mm -hmm. um and religion is important um not just as a as a cultural marker but also as something more than that Mm -hmm. and um i would have liked to have seen it maybe allow more space in its running time to tease that out a little bit more as it is we kind of get a single sequence where that kind of like all boils over at once Mm -hmm. and then kind of just is over and I would have liked to see that more. But I, I think that the reason I want to see that more is because I was digging so much the, the way that Craig and uh, this cast are um, kind of embodying what that conflict might look like mm-hmm. and the unintentional ways that that can put pressure on a seeker like Margaret who's who wants to find answers but needs to find them in her own time. Mm-hmm. And that I think is also, I, I don't know, I, I I really liked how spiritual seeking is portrayed in this movie as something that just, it has to be done and... It will happen in its own good time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's carried through, particularly in what I think is a very nice ending.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a faith journey. It's not going to be a, a single destination or a single answer necessarily. Like it's something that's ongoing. And I like that they leave that open-ended. I think I was probably a little bit more fine with that confront- familial confrontation if just because um, otherwise you're dealing with a lot of, unspoken or slightly less spoken character conflicts and expectations that never actually meet in the middle except in the spaces where margaret feels like she doesn't have any answers and i think that leads to some negative space so having an actual argument about what faith tradition margaret should be raised in i think kind of it doesn't wrap anything up it tangles up the knot a little bit more easily i think and it does allow the movie to give voice to some things that would be otherwise more or less subtext. And I think for an adaptation of a book that is for children, I think that that kind, that level of explicit, like saying what the point is works for me.
0: Well, I, I don't think it's so much the way, like the, the specifics of that confrontation that I have a problem with. It's more mm-hmm. just, I I it a little bit more. It feels like it's, it's wrapped up a little hastily perhaps. Uh, hmm. Um, the 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 upshot of this big confrontation, uh, we kind of get Margaret writing her final report for her her class at school mm-hmm. uh, about religion, and she hands it into the teacher, and uh, a moment of kind of almost despair for her, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's kind of a dark moment, but it goes by so quickly that it feels like that that pain doesn't register as strongly maybe as if it'd just been allowed to breathe a little bit more again it's a it's just a quibble and this is of course like it is a movie for young people so it's not necessarily like you don't need to like go full ingmar bergman here but i i do wish that it maybe it just given a little bit more um and again just because i think it was doing such a good job up to that point of really deftly handling a lot of these questions in an appropriate way
1: yeah i think this puts kelly freeman craig um two for two on movies with about students who have really good relationships with their teachers as well so i'm thinking of edge of 17 which i know you haven't seen i actually Mm -hmm. considered it for the watch list so listeners if you're interested in seeing more after you've seen Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, Edge of Seventeen gets my recommendation. That movie has a really good student-teacher relationship between Haley Steinfeld and Woody Harrelson. It's a little bit more antagonistic than the one here mm-hmm. in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. But Margaret's teacher, Mr. Benedict, played by Echo Callum, um, again, one of those fully realized characters with just a few deft brushstrokes, I think, Because when Margaret hands in that final project to him, the look on his face tells you everything. This was not what he intended. He did not intend to lead one of his students to despair. Um, And you see a lot of that care and worry on his face, but the movie doesn't linger on it too much because it's also not really his story. We just get enough of that texture to understand him as a slightly more full human being rather than just a teacher who assigned something that she didn't that didn't go the way that she expected it to.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, that's a, another uh, example of just the the way that, that Craig kind of lets uh, her actors kind of do do a lot of really subtle work without feeling the need to really drive it home so much. And I think, you know, even though I was just now complaining about how it goes by too fast, it is fair to say that because we don't necessarily linger in that moment it does kind of invite the viewer maybe to think a little bit more about about the the little moments and try to linger in them in our own way i guess me i i don't know i like i like that as well i like the uh there are just a bunch of nice little touches here we can talk a little bit more about just kind of the specifics of some performances. Mm -hmm. Abby Ryder Fortson as Margaret, I think is Mm -hmm. fantastic. Um, Particularly in her physical comedy. Like I wasn't expecting this to uh, be as funny, just as, as a bit, just as a comedy. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you think about Bo Burnham's eighth grade, which I think is also really wonderful Mm -hmm. uh, as well. Um, and I think that's really funny in in the, like, a lot of, there, there are a lot of visual jokes and filmmaking uh, touches that Burnham brings to that that are just wonderful. Here, I think Craig really leans heavily on uh, Fortson's ability to just, like, let her emotions flicker across her face really quickly before she sort of hurriedly stuffs them away, so that, hoping that nobody else notices. Mm-hmm. And also when she's in her room by herself and kind of goofing off, She's really funny, mm-hmm. and she's, and it's in a way that's not like she's doing a bit, but she's just a normal kid who's goofing around, and I think that's a testament to uh, her abilities as a performer.
1: Yeah, yeah. The sense of humor on this movie just kind of struck me as well, because um, you hear the subject matter, you know, puberty, seeking – faith, like not really being sure of who you are or what you believe. That sounds like that's a lot of fodder for angst, which I think is where Bo Burnham goes in eighth grade in particular. And here, those are all big and important questions. But the movie feels a little bit more like slice of life, like lighter touch without the bad connotations that I think come with that because it is a gentle movie and it's gentle towards its characters. And I think it gets that When you are a sixth grader, everything feels like it's the end of the world or the greatest thing ever, but the movie doesn't take those emotional swings because, you know, it all kind of balances out in the end. Like, again, it's a really solid balance, maybe an even keel, but that almost feels like I'm I'm cursing it with faint praise, you know, (laughs) because it is better than that. Um, I don't know. I think it's really remarkable just how well this movie managed to nail the tone of a book about pre-adolescence in a way that doesn't feel like it's talking down to that experience or chalking it up as these are going to be the greatest years of your life because they're not. Middle school is not the greatest <laughs> years of anybody's life.
0: <laughs> well, and it's also I think it's it's interesting because it is about these very universal growing up experiences, but it's also very rooted in the seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, this uh, Margaret's mother gets the phone book in the mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the only way for people to keep in touch is, you know, calling each other up on the landline or sending a postcard or something. So it, unlike eighth grade, which is very rooted in like modern concerns specifically like digital age technology and the effect that that has on growing up mm-hmm. i feel like in some ways this because it's so rooted in its period detail does a great job of highlighting how you know it doesn't matter when you were born you know it you know what it's like to be curious about the the way things the way you are changing, the way the people around you are changing, mm-hmm. to be really insecure about certain things, and to kind of like have little small victories mm-hmm. that are that are small but feel monumental nevertheless. Um, those are all sorts of things that, regardless of the time period, they're kind of universal experiences of this of this time of growing up
1: yeah i think it finds that universal nature in kind of in that specificity like this is a very colorful movie you get a lot of really good and interesting patterns the set design and production design on this thing are also very good just want to lay that out there as well um but it's also yeah i don't know like it's so specific about what it feels like to get together with a group of people that you don't know particularly well and you want to impress very badly And so you're going to do all of the ridiculous things that they have said that you should do because that is what sixth graders do. Um, And you you don't need to have experienced that exact situation in order to know what it was like to be in that situation because it gets the sense of – embarrassment and insecurity and humor and joy and everything else that also comes along with it as well
0: yeah a good movie yes Uh, (laughs) uh, listeners that is our review of are you there god it's me Margaret. definitely worth checking out especially you know if you if you've uh, got a family? It's it. I think it'd be a good watch, especially if you got kids that are kind of like maybe entering that stage of life themselves.
1: Yeah, if you have an 11 year old or a sixth grader in your life, like go see it with them. It's really good.
0: Yeah, it's worth checking out for sure. If you do get a chance to see it and have thoughts on it, you can of course hit us up on Twitter at SeeBelievePod, over email at SeeingAndBelievingCAPC at gmail dot com, or on Letterboxd where SeeBelievePod over on that site as well. Don't go anywhere, we're going to be talking about Cleo from 5 to 7 here in a bit. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going, and I feel like the the conversation that has been going on over the past week has been, has been really good, maybe because it is sort of a universal thing that you have books that you read as a kid that you loved deeply and you maybe want a little bit more of once you become a cinephile.
1: (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. So the question I posed over on Twitter was, what's a book that you read growing up that you'd love to see adapted into a movie? And then for bonus points, I also asked who should direct that movie. So, Kevin, we heard back from some pretty cool people. Tyler Huckabee responded back with Animorphs TV adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) I think Patty Jenkins would be his pick for directing that as well. Uh, That rules.
0: (laughs) I, I would be interested to see if that could actually work. Because it's, a, it's a hardcore series of books. I mean, it goes into some pretty dark places. Mm-hmm. Um, it also is a little goofy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I'd be interested to see kind of what an adaptation, like what sort of tone it would try to strike. It'd yeah. be interesting to see.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Good pick. We heard from Christy Olson who said, Jordan Peele's A Wrinkle in Time. She says it's been adapted twice before, but always poorly. So, you know, shots fired towards the other Wrinkle in Time's adaptations. But Fair. Jordan Peele doing A Wrinkle in Time seems pretty cool.
0: I mean, I'd, I, I'm i interested in the, in the reasoning for Jordan Peele. He wouldn't be my – the first one I would think of when I would think of like sort of like a YA adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean – It's inarguable he's a great director, so I'd be on board for it.
1: Yeah, and she did say specifically um, she feels like Peel would allow it to be weird but full of heart, and he would find a way to make the dystopia of Kamazats memorable and creepy. It would be different from seeing him directing kids in a children's story but she likes the idea
0: i mean if guillermo del toro can do it then jordan peele can definitely do it as well so. and he's
1: got the comedy and the horror chops for sure elijah Olson also chimed in and said hatchet directed by deborah granick probably
0: that's a really so hatchet was actually what i considered for my answer to this question nice um but while i was thinking about it, for whatever reason, Deborah Granick did not occur to me, and that's a great choice for a director. She'd be perfect for it.
1: Yeah, she'd be a great, great pick. So, if it isn't Hatchet, what's your pick?
0: Uh, did you ever read Scott Odell's Island of the Blue Dolphins oh, when you we were a young person?
1: Gosh, I loved that book.
0: I really liked that book as well, and I, I read it. Multiple times as a kid, mm-hmm. and I would be very interested to see Terrence Malick take that on.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. You know,
0: because it it is all about like a young woman. She's her people have have left her behind on this isolated island. Just her and her little brother, and they just survive and mm-hmm. live on this island for years and years and years. That seems ripe for the Malick treatment.
1: Yeah, yeah, sold. I'll I, greenlight that pitch. I'm I'm
0: pretty proud of that. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs>
1: So my pick is Mara, Daughter of the Nile, which is a historical book written by Eloise Jarvis McGraw. I think I read like a decent number of her books growing Hmm. up, just kind of 1950s author writing about ancient Egypt, which was perfect for me when I was reading those books. Um, Mara, Daughter of the Nile is about a young woman who... um, is kind of forced to serve as a double agent spy in Queen Hatshepsut's court. And there's a lot of palace intrigue. There's a little bit of romance in there. Um, And I think that Gina Prince Bythewood would be a really good pick Mm. to direct that. There's a decent amount of action. There's a couple of like fairly scary set pieces. Someone has to go rob a tomb and get stuck in the dark, like some really good stuff that I think she would have the chops to direct.
0: I've, I'm not familiar at all with that, with that book, but that sounds like it'd be right up her alley.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: That's a, that's a good pick listeners. If the, our mailbox is still open. If you have other childhood favorites and directors that you think would be perfect to adapt them, let us know over on Twitter, over email. It's a great question. And I'm curious to hear more. And now it's time for the watch list. This is, of course, the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host hasn't yet seen. We both watch it and then talk about it. So, Sarah, it was your pick this week, and you had a really interesting one Mm -hmm. to pair with Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. You picked Agnes Varda's 1962 film Cleo from 5 to 7. Yes. So uh, this movie, Cleo is a beautiful young singer who's dealing with an ominous portent on an otherwise bright summer day, some yet-to-be-determined biopsy results from her doctor, and a tarot reading that says the biopsy will reveal that she has cancer. Cleo spends the time between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., a period that in France is known to be a time for lovers' rendezvous, worrying about the future, her mortality, and a world that seems suddenly fundamentally changed so the galaxy brain connection here at least that i discerns. tell me if i'm on to something here mm-hmm. is that uh the protagonists of both of these movies that we're talking about this week are groping for meaning uh, uh in a time of great change mm-hmm. um so i'm curious to know because you did mention uh to me uh outside of recording that cleo from five to seven is not just a movie you like a lot, but maybe one of your very favorite movies. Yes. So I really want to know, what is it about Cleo's search for meaning that you find so particularly compelling?
1: I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that this is an Agnes Varda movie, and the way that she portrays Cleo's, we can't even call it a personal journey or anything like that, because Cleo's bouncing around Paris, but we spend a lot of our time in her head. And Varda is able to communicate the intense anxiety that Cleo feels as she's trying to just kill time, waiting for this phone call so that she can know for certain whether or not she has cancer. Varda portrays Cleo as the spoiled, impetuous, beautiful, like deeply interesting person that she is without... Talking down to her anxieties, and also without losing sight of the anxieties around Paris at that specific moment in time. Um, Algiers is happening, like right around Cleo, and Cleo's not paying any attention to it, but it is something that is also in the air surrounding her. And it's Agnes Varda, so it is also a deeply playful movie and a smart movie and a movie that is able to hold all of that complexity. And a lot of that complexity is held in the innovative editing that she's doing. Like This is a French New Wave movie. There's going to be jump cuts, but those jump cuts are used... To convey the sense of anxiety that Cleo feels as she's exiting the tarot reading and re-entering the street, we also get those jump cuts just as she's traveling from place to place. But it's not just the playfulness of the jump cuts; it's also the playfulness of where the camera goes and how it's positioned around Cleo and around her head, and when and where the attention shifts a little bit away from our protagonist and towards the other people around her. We get such a sense of life in Paris in 1962 on the summer solstice that, um, I don't know, I feel almost as though I've been transported there. Like this movie transports me in a really fundamental way. And I feel like it transports me both into Cleo's head and then also into the street surrounding Cleo, both at the same time. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I love the complexity of that portrait. I love the playfulness of that portrait. And I love the compassion of that portrait too, because mm. the movie also doesn't lose sight of the fact that she is dealing with a potentially life-changing diagnosis. So I'm curious to know whether or not this movie transported you as well.
0: I mean, I, I liked it quite a bit. Yes. Um, and one of the reasons why is something you just touched on, which is... How Varda uses Cleo's, um, her kind of like her sense of impending doom, I guess. Like for her, um, life has completely changed, mm-hmm. um, and yet the world around her kind of goes on as all as it always has, and yet, her, even though nothing particularly outwardly has changed in her surroundings. Her relationship to them has changed in such a way that she's kind of seeing it all for the first time, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of things are new to her, and that is demonstrated in a, a couple of ways. But one that I really, one thing that I like that Varda does here is show Cleo kind of, you know, walking down the street or being in a public place, and Varda's camera just sort of. Um, glides from conversation to conversation. We catch snatches of of conversations. We kind of get to eavesdrop on people's lives just a little bit um, and get a sense for the fact that um, maybe as Cleo is just beginning to realize she's not the only person in the world. (laughs) There are other people, there's all sorts of people having their own miniature dramas around her that she hasn't really noticed until she's having to contend with the fact that she might be leaving the world behind very soon, or mm-hmm. at least sooner than she had expected. Mm-hmm. And that new perspective that we get through Cleo's eyes, Varda also bestows on the viewer as well. Like we get to kind of experience that as well without the accompanying angst about ourselves having an impending, potentially fatal diagnosis. <laughs> and I think that's, that's kind of wonderful. And, um, I don't know. I, I think it's it's one of the things that movies can do really well that Varda takes advantage of is just being able to just with a few seconds of imagery or a snatch of overheard conversation suggesting a whole world of possibility and and meaning that uh, would take much more if you were just if you were writing about it. I guess like a picture is worth a thousand words, and I think there's a lot of words that Varda is able to just sort of suggest with a few seconds of film. Mm -hmm. And I I really liked that.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of moments of voiceover where we do get a little bit of a glimpse inside either Cleo's head or inside of her um, assistant's head as well. I I
0: really want to talk about that, but please keep going.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Let's put a pin in that. But there's, there's a line, and I don't remember who says it, but somebody says in voiceover, Um, that they've suddenly noticed like all of these stories that we can't possibly fully understand. And I think it happens when both of them are sitting in a cafe and somebody's attention just sort of wanders for a little bit. And we hear a couple break up and we hear like another couple like get together and we see different people discussing business and the weather and the impending war. And um, you just get like all of those flashes of life all at once. And it's kind of overwhelming even though they could each be summed up
0: in just a couple of words each but I'm curious to know what you have to say about those voiceovers well I I don't know that I have anything to to say or to pronounce about it (laughs) but I want to talk about it a little bit more because uh, that's those snatches of internal monologue from people other than Cleo caught me off guard Hmm. because so much of the film is really so closely aligned with her perspective to the point like we're actually seeing like we're getting point of view shots for for her that the the few times where we are suddenly taken outside of her head and and just dropped into somebody else's head for just a few seconds to hear what they're thinking um i wasn't expecting that and i i want to talk about it more because i'm i have guesses about what's going on there but i'm not sure since i'm just watching it for the first time if i'm fully grasping it i i'm curious to know uh how much you take those moments of voiceover at face value like are we actually hearing getting inside these people's heads or are we sort of getting what cleo imagines they're thinking about her uh, it's it's an interesting question and i'm not sure if i've landed on a definitive unified theory of it (laughs) that's
1: such a good question because i've it's never occurred to me before to consider that it would be anything other than face value i've always read it as this is exactly what each of these characters are actually thinking I think it makes sense that it could be something that Cleo thinks everybody else is thinking about her, because half the time it's a monologue about how she, Cleo, is kind of a selfish, spoiled child. And that is a repeated line throughout the entire movie. Some people call her that deliberately to her face, because she is being either willfully or unintentionally difficult. To be fair, she is under a lot of stress, but... I think it's implied that she's kind of like this all the time, at least like the level of impetuousness and the level of impatience and the level of Drama. vanity. <laughs> yeah. And and she's a little bit caught up inside her own head. And so I think why the reason why I think of it as being something that is actually removing, like the the film actually removing itself from her head for a moment is that... I think that she's so caught up in herself that she is incapable of understanding other people as having their own thoughts, at least until she starts wandering the streets of Paris a little bit more and then getting a sense for, oh, there are so many other dramas out there that I don't fully understand. There's a scene fairly early on in the movie where she takes a taxi across town and the taxi driver is a woman. And we get to hear a little bit of the taxi driver's story and about how sometimes she has to deal with, you know, gangs of youths, and it's kind of a dangerous line of work, but she doesn't really mind it. And we hear all of that, and the camera is deeply interested in what's going on in this taxi driver's life. I don't know the story behind why she's included in the movie, but Varda does tend to blur the line between fiction and nonfiction a little bit. So this could be someone that Varda picked up off the street. It could just be an actor. I kind of like that, on, like that slightly rough not fully knowing where this character came from except that she's just been plopped into Cleo's life but once Cleo gets out of the taxi and starts walking up to her apartment she says out loud to her assistant like I think it's completely barbaric that this woman is driving a taxi around town like and you get another sense of just what Cleo is like as a character like she she seems almost like a little bit overly conservative at least in this one area of her life and I find that deeply fascinating because it's something that always takes me off guard I never remember that detail until I watch the movie again and I don't know that Cleo would be capable of assigning any sense of interiority to this character in the taxi and that line after she gets out of it kind of confirms that for me
0: yeah, I, I like how, you know, when I think of the French New Wave, I often think of either films that are very interested in style um, and or films that are um, theoretical or polemical in nature. You, you think of, like, uh, Godard mm-hmm. and, and the kinds of films he makes – Or uh, even Truffaut, where where the films he makes they are very personal, but they're also um, they're so personal that it's it's sort of laser focused on the self. And what I really liked about this film is that it is uh, you know it's it's got so many of the hallmarks of the French New Wave, and yet it's very interested in others and and. Uh, the world and the so-called minor players in Cleo's life um I really like movies that remind us that you know everybody is sort of the star of their own drama Hmm. and um Cleo from 97 kind of in its own way does that um even though uh Cleo as you know this this beautiful uh pop singer she's you know her star is rising she's famous enough that people recognize her on the street and ask for her autograph um, in a lot of ways she's used to being the star like like having center stage uh, wherever she goes she's got main character syndrome a little bit a little bit and you know and, and part of that you know like she's young and and, and it's understandable um, and I don't think the film is harsh to her about that no. um, it's understanding and yet the film is also very interested in, in kind of Breaking that part of her her solipsism open through um, kind of like inserting that that voiceover where where whether or not it's actually what these other people are thinking or whether it's what she thinks they're thinking, mm-hmm. it might be that it it doesn't really matter because maybe for the first time she's actually curious about what they're thinking, mm-hmm. and um, that I think is a really interesting thing that Varda does that I don't see as much in French films from this
1: period. Mm, mm-hmm. Speaking of Jean-Luc Godard, mm-hmm. he shows up in this movie a little bit as well.
0: You, you know, I didn't, I, <laughs> I, am a terrible cinephile. I didn't even rec- recognize him in the, in that short silent film mm-hmm. until it was, Pointed out to me later. I was just like, "Oh, I should have recognized." But it's it's fun to see those those little uh, those little touches here. Yeah,
1: it's Godard and Anna Karina both in that short as well. Um, I think the version of the movie that I saw actually calls out that there is a special surprise appearance by Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina in the middle of the movie. Like it just spoils the surprise completely as part of the like um, I don't know the pre-roll or something like that, which I find deeply funny as well. Um, it's an interesting, almost like distraction from the rest of the film, because it feels so light and fluffy. And yet it also comes from, I think, a deep sense of affection towards silent movies. So um, I don't know, it's, it's, I'm curious to know what you thought about that beyond just... There's a, there's a little moment where we get a movie within the movie.
0: Well, I, it's, it's so funny because it is sort of a light and fluffy, you know, uh, comedic short. And yet it's about death too. Mm -hmm. Everything it, after Cleo is sort of, you know, dealing with this cloud hanging over her, um, suddenly everything becomes about death. Wherever she goes, she encounters, um, you know, like a, 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 like a street performer swallowing frogs yeah. or uh, a comedic short that is funny, but it's also about a, a guy who thinks that his, his beloved has, has died. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, even the songs that are brought to her to sing for a new recording are very morbid in nature. And I, I really like how, even though this is sort of like, a strange little interlude that doesn't really advance anything per se it does stick with the theme that for Cleo she she is kind of she in a way she she almost is kind of a Bergman character like she can't get away from the, the specter of her own mortality and it's not something she's had to think about because she's young and beautiful and she's used to her looks and her body being kind of meal ticket like Mm -hmm. uh there's even a moment where she kind of like primps in the mirror for a moment and we get a bit of her internal monologue where she talks about how she she knows that people are always looking at her Mm -hmm. and she she kind of likes that and she kind of counts on it and for cancer to strike somebody like that for what has been something like for her body which has been uh, kind of a symbol of security for her mm-hmm. to suddenly rebel against her just upends everything to the point where everything that she encounters suddenly becomes about that kind of betrayal by herself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that's really really interesting and And I like how Varda is able to use even lighter moments to sort of, you know, touch on that and, and uh, make that point.
1: Yeah, I don't think she's twisting the knife necessarily, but she is definitely poking you in the ribs a little bit. Mm -hmm. I have lost count of the number of mirrors that show up in this movie, Mm -hmm. too. It's not just the one mirror. There's a mirror in, I think, every single scene, sometimes multiple mirrors. And every chance that Cleo gets, she's looking in that mirror and she's looking at herself until she isn't. And I can't quite pinpoint exactly when it happens, but I think it's one of the street encounters where she comes around the corner and um, there's a window that's been broken and a man has been shot. And we don't see the body, but we do see the broken window and we kind of see Cleo's reflection in that window and it's a little bit fragmented. And that feels very fresh. Like we've seen that shot before. It's something that other people have have copied and used since then. But here it feels like a fundamental breaking point for Cleo because she's recognized that wait a minute I'm mortal but other people are too and after that moment Cleo runs into Antoine and I'm curious to know what you think about him as a character
0: I really so I did some reading up about this this film just kind of curious to see what other people have seen been saying about it. and I was a little bit surprised that a lot of people seem to uh, be saying that they found the beginning of the film stronger than the end of the film. Hmm. And that surprised me because I really liked their little meet-cute. I thought it was romantic. I liked the way that Varda directs Antoine to um, just the way he speaks is is very, very calm, very quiet. He's obviously, you know, he's trying to, you know, sweet talk Cleo and, and pick her up but he's not we, we see other men do the same thing for her and they are much more almost threatening about it
1: they're definitely more aggressive they're,
0: aggressive might be a better better word for it they're just they're they're a little pushy and he's not he's very sweet to her and he's that way even before he knows uh, what is hanging over her head mm. And I really liked that that little touch and I enjoyed how it kind of, it, I don't know, it, it made me think a little bit of Linklater's before movies. Uh, you know, like yeah. I, I had to, I have to think that Linklater loves this film because uh, just the way that so much of this film is uh, Cleo kind of going with different people and kind of having conversations with them about maybe nothing in particular, but everything in particular at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly true of Cleo and Antoine, how they are kind of like, they're batting things back and forth and and flirting a little bit. Um, and yet the longer they're together, the more she realizes that she really needs somebody to to take her seriously and be with her. And how much of a ball net is for her, especially in comparison to the man who is supposedly her lover mm-hmm. who kind of just says, You're there's always something wrong with you. And he she gets very little like actual gentleness out of him. Mm-hmm. And the contrast between him and Antoine, I think, is so stark that I really appreciate it. I thought it was honestly very romantic.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's a sweet character and I think he's the only person who really truly takes her seriously. She's got a friend that she drives around with for a hot minute, and the friend, I think, takes her seriously, but the friend also has other things that she's thinking about, and she's a little bit preoccupied and doesn't fully understand the extent of what Cleo is going through. We also meet some musicians that Cleo collaborates with i suppose like a musician and a lyricist and the two of them um come in and make absolute like light of cleo's state she's sitting in bed when they come (laughs) in and they're dressed up as a a doctor and a pharmacist a giant
0: syringe very
1: funny like piece of improvisation there um but because she's been putting up this front of you know, youth and eternal beauty. I think that there's some form of an armor between her and them too. And I love the way that Varda uses the camera to get at Cleo's state of mind, even when she's trying to be strong in front of all of these other characters and how that's completely and utterly failing. And that might be part of what leads those other characters to treat her like she is a spoiled child, because there's some level of, impetuousness or like inconsistency with the way that she's approaching her work and yet when Cleo is singing these songs that these musicians have given her the camera swivels around her until the background behind her is completely black like her thoughts have gone dark and that's a beautiful like elegant piece of framing to get you into like Cleo's head in a way that it also explains why the other characters around here would be completely shocked by her turn of mood because they don't understand fully what she's going through. And with Antoine, I think it's the first time that she's ever actually really side by side with anybody like in frame in the camera. And she stays side by side and on the same level with him for pretty much the rest of their time together. And it's fairly fleeting. It's the back 20, 15, 20 minutes of the movie, I think. Um, but they're two kindred spirits because he also has the specter of mortality hovering over him, too.
0: He's Yeah, he's a soldier who's shipping out that night mm-hmm. to go to war. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I appreciate that the two of them recognize the spot that they're both in. Um, and they're just there to spend the time with each other. And that kind of brings me back to why I like this movie so much as well which is that we're there to spend the time with Cleo too, even though she can't see us. I kind of think of this as really being like one of the ultimate hangout movies because you're there to be there with the character. The plot doesn't really matter. You're there almost in exactly real time. It's a 90-minute movie. It's Cleo from 5 to 7. We get a little bit of skipping around in there, but we're there to run down the clock along with her. And I think in the process, I feel a little bit more compassionate towards her, especially near the end rather than in the beginning. And I feel a little bit more aligned with Antoine on that level, too, because I think he gets what she's trying to do as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that uh, I was able to spend time with Cleo as well. So thanks for uh, making that possible with this watch list mm-hmm. pick. It was a good one.
1: Glad to hear that. Yeah.
0: Uh, listeners, if you were watching along with us and got a chance to watch Cleo from 5 to 7, or if you're interested in checking it out, it is uh, streaming on, I think, the Criterion channel as well as HBO Max mm-hmm. and Amazon Prime. So you can check it out there. Uh, either way, we're interested in your thoughts. If you've seen this film and want to share what you see in Cleo and the uh, the afternoon that she has, we're all ears. You can email us. At seeing and believingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at Uh We love to hear your thoughts on that stuff. For next week, Sarah, we are going to be talking about a new release that was on your most anticipated films of the of the spring. Uh, when we did that episode way back in I think it was February, wasn't it?
1: February or March, I genuinely can't remember exactly when because I've just been running down the clock with all of these other <laughs> movies.
0: <laughs> it, there you go. It all it all uh, blurs together, but we are going to be talking about polite society. This is the film about a stunt woman and a marriage. and uh, it looks like it should be a good time. We'll <laughs> see. Um, but I'm going to be pairing that with another film about, Polite Society. I'm really <laughs> excited to revisit this one. It's Gregory Lukava's 1936 comedy, My Man Godfrey. So not the
1: 50s remake, the not, 36 one. Yeah,
0: that's right. Uh, careful listeners, if you want to watch along, uh, it's not the 1950. I think it's 1957 remake. Mm-hmm. It's the 1936 original with William Powell and Carol Lombard. How can you get any better than that? And the good news is it's free pretty much anywhere. Amazon Prime youtube to be you can find it anywhere if you google it it's worth a, it's worth checking out and i'm looking forward to talking about it next week
1: looking forward to catching up with it
0: well that'll do it for this week's episode listeners thanks so much for joining us seeing and believing is brought to you of course by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.